Hello and welcome to Random Walk, a sciencey podcast where we take multiple steps of unit length, each with directions selected independently from the previous step. I'm your host, Adam Fortas. This week's Random Walk is probably the first one I ever met. Brownie in motion usually follows a random walk. Allow me to explain. Brownie in motion is named after botanist Robert Brown, hence Brownian, who uh, first described the phenomenon in 1827, so a good pedigree there, while looking through a microscope at pollen. Not just pollen in air though, pollen immersed in water. In 1905, almost 80 years later, theoretical physicist Albert Einstein published a paper where he modeled the motion of pollen particles as being moved by individual water molecules. This was actually one of his first major scientific contributions. So, now we're starting to see the the thread connecting it to random walks. The direction of the force of atomic bombardment is constantly changing, so if you know, there's no flow in the cube of water. Uh, there's going to be some some heat. The, the fluid is going to be warm, so there's going to be some uh, thermal motion of the molecules, even if you don't really see any, um, any flow. And these molecules are going to be hitting the pollen from various directions. Random directions, in fact. Uh, so if this atomic bombardment is constantly changing then at different times the particle is going to be hit on one side more than another, leading to, you know, the pollen particle to just sort of drift around randomly. So this explanation of Brownian motion served as a convincing piece of evidence that atoms and molecules actually existed. So this is our random walk for the week. Little molecules bouncing off of a grain of pollen. So if you look at it, it basically will just look like a a random walk or a drunkard's walk. Okay, this week, Jesse D takes us deeper into the abyss of Subnautica on Gamer's Guide to Ecology. Looks like you brought a haggis to a climate fight. I'm supposed to do that in an accent, but I, I, I just can't. The biggest climate conference is underway, and they want you to know how much carbon you make by eating their food. Genetic testing shows California condor produced sons, and didn't even need a father. A couple of virgin births, if you will. This segment is so fertile for jokes, but I promise I will abstain. And finally, I think I teased this one last week, but we just didn't get to it. Watching NASA play Armageddon, starring Bruce Willis. You aren't going to want to close your eyes, you aren't going to want to fall asleep, and you won't want to miss a thing from this episode. I said that last week. I know I did. But first, this podcast is brought to you by scientificcanada.ca. The goal of Scientific Canada is to get real science to real people, which is presumably you. We do this by producing hopefully entertaining and presumably informative content about research, academia, and you know just curious nerd stuff in general. A big part of our thing is trying to find and promote new ideas, new projects, new voices with financial support and expertise. One of these projects, actually, Gamer's Guide to Ecology. So, if you have an idea for a project, we would love to hear from you. Head to scientificcanada.ca to see some of the shows and articles we've helped with. And if you want to discuss details, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Fortis. That's F-O-R-T-A-I-S. Or just email me, fortisadam at gmail.com. Support for our projects comes from our generous and incredibly smart Patreon subscribers. Find out more about how you can help us with our next projects over at patreon.com slash Thanks! Hi again, welcome back. I'm Jesse D, a master's student in ecology and evolution, and an open world RPG gamer. Welcome to another episode of Gamer's Guide to Ecology, where I play popular open world RPGs from an ecological perspective. On today's episode of Gamer's Guide to Ecology, we'll explore unique adaptations of alien life forms in Subnautica and the types of natural selection that may have led to those adaptations. 
You can follow along with my playthroughs on twitch.tv slash justjessyd on Thursday and Friday nights from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Your PDA device in Subnautica has a compendium that you can complete by scanning life forms on planet 4546b. There's a large variety of life depicted on the planet with about 50 types of both plants and animals. Most fish are edible, but only a few plants are. The biodiversity of the planet is spread across many different biomes that range in depth from above the surface of the water to over 2,000 meters below the surface. Some of the agricultural plants on land were cultivated by previous crash survivors as food sources. In Subnautica, you can scan pieces of infrastructure or technology from the crash to gain their blueprints and learn how to build them. When you scan the grow beds you find in old habitat structures, you gain the ability to cultivate plants. You can grow marine plants in underwater beds or land plants indoors or above water. Plants are a reliable and renewable source of sustenance and fresh water. Organisms are uniquely suited to their environments, and the plants and animals in Subnautica are no exception. For instance, life in a saltwater environment demands that organisms be able to filter out the salt from the water surrounding them to maintain adequate levels of fresh water in their cells. Bladderfish have a partition body that they may use to store their filtered water, which is what you harvest when you process them into fresh water. Another fish, the peeper, has a large yellow eye on either side of its head that makes up a substantial portion of its body. These large eyes may have evolved from strong selective pressure from predation, where the peepers with bigger eyes were better able to see predators and avoid being eaten. This is an example of directional selection. Recall that selection is the combination of forces that result in differential survival and reproduction between individuals. Another example of selection is seen in a species similar to the peeper, the cave-dwelling oculus fish. They live in dark caves illuminated by pink light from bioluminescent mushrooms. They have two large pink bioluminescent eyes, which could aid their vision in dark water. They likely came about when the common ancestor to the peeper and the oculus underwent disruptive selection when they colonized the cave habitat. <music> Lastly, I wanted to chat about the behavior of the apex predators in Subnautica, the reaper and ghost leviathans. These leviathans patrol and hold their territories through aggressive behaviors by attacking anything that is unlucky enough to wander by. The chilling screams and screeches that they make are often the only warning that you're in their backyard. They're solitary animals, and it's unclear if the males are the ones that hold territory in an attempt to entice females, since no courtship or social behaviors are observed in these species in the game. Aggression and territory holding are male mating strategies in response to competition for mates with other males. In some real-life fish, alternative mating strategies exist where some males use sneaky tactics to mate with females by lurking nearby territories, or even disguising themselves as females. When an organism pretends to be something that it's not, ecologists and biologists call that mimicry. A common example of mimicry is when a non-venomous or non-poisonous animal has similar coloration to a venomous or poisonous one, for instance with the king snake and the coral snake, or the viceroy and monarch butterflies. One interesting thing Subnautica does is if a territorial male is killed, the biodiversity in the territory changes as other species begin to move in again. Sometimes other dangerous species take over. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not share it with friends? 
Find me on Twitter at J and send me any feedback or questions that you have about the show or games that I'm playing. Thanks so much for listening today. If you'd like to support the podcast, please hit subscribe on whichever platform you're listening and download new episodes as they come out. And please follow my Twitch channel as well. Come say hi in the chat during streams at twitch.tv slash justjessyd to help me hit affiliate. Your support means that I can buy more open world and RPG games and keep making episodes about in-game ecology. Thanks for tuning in. Hope to catch you next time. Podcast art is by Lara LeBlanc. Theme music is called Rain Song by Brett Eagleston, and you can hear more of his music at bretteagleston.bandcamp.com. COP26 menu is like serving cigarettes at a lung cancer conference. This is a headline that I will link to in the show notes. Let's dive in. So, academic Twitter has been on fire recently with news coming out of the COP26 meeting. It's the world's biggest climate change conference, and I definitely had to look up the full name because I don't know what the heck COP26 is. So here it is. The 26th UN Climate Change Conference of the Parties. Yeah, I don't know. So, there are a lot of news threads to pull on here, and plenty of sources are covering it. One of my favorites being Nature News. I'll link to that as well. So, for now, I'll leave the heavy-duty coverage to all of them, and, uh, and instead talk about something maybe that's flying under the radar a little bit. COP26 is being hosted in Glasgow, Glasgow. And one of the cool things about traveling for conferences, at least from my experience, is, you know, getting to try local food. This conference has taken a local approach, attempting to source much of its food from Scotland, which I find really cool. Uh, It's also made an effort to make its available menus heavily plant-based. Again, I'm liking it. The meat and dairy industry is, I I don't know if you know it, but a huge contributor to CO2 emissions, which has led many to reduce the amount of animal products in their diet, including myself. In particular, they in particular, this conference advertises that about 42% of their menus are entirely plant-based. And that's a reasonable number. Not as great if you consider that, you know, their menus include pastries and, uh, you know, various things you wouldn't really expect meats to be a part of. I guess dairy is in a lot of pastries. But anyway, 42% is uh, the stat that I've seen. Now, the conference organizers are also trying to get a bit more quantitative with all of this, and so they've hired a Swedish startup company called Clamato. That's with a K. So what this company does is try to provide carbon costs associated with every menu option. Motivation for this, uh, you know, is written on every single menu, and I quote, Today, an average meal has a carbon footprint of 1.7 kilograms CO2 in the UK. According to the WWF, we need to get this number down below 0.5 kilograms to reach the goals defined in the Paris Agreement. By including climate labels on our menus, we aim to make it easier to achieve this goal. Together. Okay, so what this means is after each item on the menu, a CO2 value is given. Allow me to present some breakfast options. 
Field Scottish mushrooms and thyme on toasted whole grain bread. Plant-based. 0.4 kilograms of CO2. Rora Dairy Organic Yogurt Pots. Flavors. Natural. Perthshire honey. Fruit. 0.2 kilograms of CO2. Danish pastries. Made with 100% Scottish ingredients. Plant-based. 0.2. Freshly baked croissant. Made with 100% Scottish ingredients. Plant-based. 0.1. Of course, like I was saying, these are not what I would consider full meals. So let's look at a few other menu options. Fish and chips. 1.1 kilograms of CO2. Tempura broccoli, 0.8. So, as you can see here, everything so far is above the WWF guide of 0.5 kilograms of CO2. Even the plant-based tempura broccoli. However, the salad menu keeps things below 0.5. Even the ones sporting chicken and fish, which is pretty good. But, uh, you know, this uh, this is Glasgow, so we need something a bit heavier. Let's take a look at some of their uh, their local flair. The heavy hitters really smash this 0.5 target. Haggis, neeps, and tatties. Grants of Speyside haggis. Scottish turnip and Benzies potatoes with an Aran, Aran mustard sauce? I don't know. 3.4. Basically a burger. But they do have a vegetarian option that comes in at 0.6. I had to look up neeps and tatties. Neeps, turnips. Tatties, mashed potatoes. Haggis, if you've never had the pleasure, is haggis. The national dish of Scotland, a type of pudding composed of the liver, heart, and lungs of a sheep, or other animals, minced and mixed with beef or mutton suet and oatmeal, and seasoned with onion, cayenne pepper, and other spices. But that's not all. The mixture is packed into a sheep's stomach and boiled. So it's a bit of a mystery to me what exactly they do to make vegetarian haggis. Whose stomach do they boil it in? Okay, but seriously though, I do love this idea. Of course, it's not perfect. I would have preferred to see the, you know, bold choice of cutting animal products completely from the menu, provided they could do it in a way that satisfies everyone's dietary requirements. I've linked to an article in the show notes that talks about why we should be disappointed with this effort. Uh, This is the one I referred to at the very beginning. Some of the more salient points they bring up is that, you know, the CO2 footprint isn't everything when it comes to environmental impact. Uh, There, you know, of course, ways plenty of ways, in fact, to disrupt ecosystems and damage the environment that doesn't require CO2. You know, just horrible fishing practices and whatnot can just be, you know. But it's also worth asking how much of the carbon expensive materials they stock at the conference, regardless of people ordering them. Uh, where does it go if it doesn't get used? I know the caterers have made a point of designing the menu to have lots of ingredient overlap, like mushrooms are used in a variety of different things. Beef is in a variety of different things, but they would likely have to have placed their orders and stocked all of the menu items far, you know, ahead of time. There's a ton of people going to this conference. So it makes me wonder if ordering based off the CO2 cost actually means anything at all at this conference. Overall, great idea, Uh, you know, from a a perspective of using the menu as a way to emphasize that uh, every decision has climate implications. But I guess I'm just a little bummed that they sort of stopped there. They could have really went for it and, I don't know, maybe converted some meaters, meat eaters, that there are plenty of satisfying alternatives that can supplement their diets with. Of course, the real kick is uh, how much air travel was a result of this conference. You know, I would have thought after two years of COVID, virtual everything, there would have been enough motivation to uh, move the whole show online. But, uh, you know, maybe next year.
California condors are capable of virgin birth. I saw this one in The Atlantic. And thankfully, I haven't seen a single Jesus, Mary, and Joseph reference in relation to this story. And I'm not going to be the one to do it. You'll just have to make it up for yourself. A case of virgin birth has been reported in a California condor lineage. These very endangered birds have been the focus of study in captive breeding since 1983, when they numbered only 22. They've grown in numbers since then to just over 500, but two birds in particular have been making the news in the last few weeks. Allow me to introduce to you SB260 and SB517. This is their names in the California Condor, quote, stud book. Uh, so these guys underwent genetic sequencing as part of the breeding program, and to the scientist's surprise, a big fat 0% of their genetic information matched with their supposed bird father. Rather, all of their genetic material appears to have come from the mother, implying that the mother's eggs were able to self-fertilize in some way. Now, I'm not an ecologist or a zoologist or anything like that, but I... You know, so I was shocked to learn that virgin birth, aka parthenogenesis, is actually not that uncommon in the animal world. Fish, amphibians, and reptiles do it somewhat frequently, but it's not very often that you see it in birds. Although chickens and turkeys are, you know, it does happen in them somewhat often. This type of reproduction has been induced artificially in a few species, like in the fish and amphibian world. Uh, and it's also worth pointing out that there was another Atlantic article from 2013 that reported on an immaculately conceived anteater. Their words, not mine. The immaculate conception is, I believe, a reference to the Jesus and Mary story. Christian listeners will be quick to point out here that the immaculateness of Mary's conception was not about sex, but sin. But whatever. I'm sure the anteater also lived a very good life. So it's kind of interesting. This information was discovered years after these condors died, so they're not still hanging around. It was found kind of as a fluke as uh, researchers were going through the big old DNA database of condors. And I guess this is a bit of a testament to the value of keeping good lab notes. And in this case, they were also able to connect the birds' IDs to physical descriptions. And I quote from the Atlantic article, Both of the condors did have some documented health issues. SB260, a male hatched at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park in 2001, died two years after being released into the wild. He was always small and did not integrate well with wild birds. SB517, a male hatched in the Los Angeles Zoo in 2009, had a curved spine and trouble walking. He was never released into the wild and died in captivity at about the age of eight. California condors, by the way, usually live for decades. Quote within a quote, they certainly weren't, shall we say, shining specimens of the condor, says Damien Chapman, a biologist at the Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium. So how does this parthenogenesis work? Now from Wikipedia. Normal egg cells form in the process of meiosis and are haploid. That means they have half as many chromosomes as uh, a fully formed entity of, uh, of whatever the species is. Haploid individuals are usually non-viable, so if you are born with half your genetic material, you're usually not able to reproduce. And parthenogenetic offspring usually have diploid, so they're actually usually complete. 
So depending on the mechanism involved in restoring the diploid number of chromosomes, parthenogenic offspring may have anywhere between all and half of their mother's alleles. That's their genetic material. Which is kind of bizarre to think about. Um, let's see here. The ones that have all of their mother's genetic material are called full clones. And as one might expect, having only half is called a half clone. And now you might be wondering, I mentioned that the, both of these condors were male, and that is not a coincidence. So in species like humans, we have X and Y chromosomes, you might have heard of this. And in the uh, female, like born, the female case, you have two X's. And so a mother's haploid cells could only produce another female, I believe. Uh, but some birds and some other species are a little bit different. They have what's considered ZW chromosome. And in this case, it kind of does the opposite. So with condors, uh, these will be male. They will all be male. Now, I said I mentioned earlier that uh, these parthenotes normally aren't the, the, the best specimens of their, of their species. And they tend not to live very long. It's uh, usually sort of a genetic-based uh, errors in their coding that you know they get physical issues and and whatnot um, and although these birds in particular didn't live a full condor life they did make it further than one might have expected but it's also worth noting that just because the physical issues sounded like something you might expect from a parthenote parthenote we can't really say for sure that's what their issue was so, with this in mind, the researchers are digging into the full genome of these birds. little aside, uh, a lot of genetic sequencing only looks at a small portion of the subject's genome, in including places like 23andMe. They use a partial sequencing technique that has a lot of the important information that you would want to know. But there's still also a ton of other information that a full sequencing can, uh, can give you. So at this point, it's really too early to say much definitively about the strain situation. Um, so let's just finish this story off with uh, some interesting bird fact from the Atlantic. Uh, let's see. So understanding how parthenogenesis works doesn't necessarily explain why some females go through it and others don't. The poultry industry, which given its interest in bird breeding, has extensively studied this. And it's found that a number of factors influence it in turkeys and chickens. One is genetics. Different poultry breeds have significantly different rates of parthenogenesis, ranging from 0.16% in barred Plymouth Rock chickens to uh, 3% in, co uh, in commercial turkeys and a whopping almost 17% in Beltsville small white turkeys. So one in five, see, almost one in five uh, turkeys of this breed can come out from uh, unfertilized eggs. Poultry scientists have also succeeded in selecting for parthenogenesis, increasing the incidence in Beltsville small white turkeys more than threefold to 41.5% in five generations. Crazy. And environmental factors as well, like high temperatures or viral infections, also seem to trigger this in poultry. So there you go. Condors. Poultry. What's next? NASA crashes stuff into an asteroid, but for a reason. 
So let's go over the mission. The asteroid system is a two-mass system. So there's actually a big one and a small one. We're targeting the small one. The total system mass and density is 5.278 times 10 to the 11 kilograms. That's huge. And the density is 1.7 grams per centimeter cubed. The smaller mass, also known as a moonlet, is our target, which is about 160 meters in diameter compared to 760 meters of the main body. Assuming uniform density, we're talking something like 3.65 times 10 to the 9 kilograms for our target. Now, I couldn't find the target's velocity at impact, or what we expect it to be, and since it's orbit, but since it's orbiting a larger body, uh, it could make contact at different points in the orbit, and this is going to significantly affect the velocity at any given moment, at least relative to the expensive satellite we're smashing into it. So let's, for, you know, right now, just call it zero. This will still give us a sense of the change in velocity the moonlet should experience, which is what we're going to calculate here. So, we're launching a satellite that will pretty much completely disintegrate on impact. I couldn't find the mass of the satellite, but if I remember correctly, these things tend to be about the mass of a car, so let's say 2,000 kilograms. It should have a velocity of about 6,600 meters per second, or 24,000 kilometers per hour, at impact. So, this gives it a momentum of 1.3 times 10 to the 7 newton seconds, or kilograms meters per second. So all of this data is provided by NASA, and you can uh, see it in the show notes. So let's assume all of the momentum gets transferred to the moonlet. If the moonlet were the same size as the satellite, we might expect it to go firing off at the same 6,600 meters per second that the satellite came in at. But the moonlet is enormous. So what is the change in velocity we expect from the moonlet? 0.01 kilometers per hour. Are you impressed? It's really not a lot. About twice the speed of an ordinary snail. I, uh, I looked up for comparison. So they're planning to send a follow-up mission to check in on things and see what actually happens. But I don't have a good sense of how they're going to measure such a small velocity change. So, I'm going to speculate here. You can re-measure the moonlet's orbital period around the larger body. So, right now, NASA has a pretty good idea, has pretty good data on the motions of this system. They cite a distance between the two bodies as 1.18 kil kilometers. There's no uncertainty quoted here, so I assume, uh, so I'm also going to assume a circular orbit rather than some sort of elliptical one and an orbital period of about 11.92 hours. So 11.92 hours it takes to circle the larger body. If the moonlet slows down by just a little bit, let's assume the orbital distance stays the same for now, that's a pretty good assumption anyway, then the orbital period will slow down. Measure the new period, and bam, you have your change in velocity. So let's put some numbers to it. If the orbital circumference is related to the 1.18 uh, kilometer distance between the two, then in one period, the smaller moonlet will travel 7.4 kilometers. Now we can calculate an orbital velocity by dividing that distance by the time it takes to cover that distance. So that gives us 0.621 kilometers per hour. So keep in mind, this isn't the absolute speed of the moonlet. The whole system is moving at some average speed. This is just relative 
to the larger friend that it's rotating around. So let's estimate the new orbital velocity. Instead of 0.621 kilometers per hour, let's say it drops to 0.61 kilometers per hour. We can retrace our steps, find a new orbital period, and it looks like it should be something like 12.1 hours, or, or a total difference of about 12 minutes. It should take 12 minutes longer to complete a full circle, a full orbit. Again, this is a really small change, but, you know, if you measure the time it takes for the moonlet to make 10 or 100 or 1,000 revolutions around its larger buddy, then we're talking 2 hours, 200 hours, 2,000 hours difference. And the nice thing at this point, we just have to hit our stopwatch and count. That's easy enough. Okay, so when, when are we doing this? Are we do? Well, the mission launch is set for November 23rd, and the impact is scheduled for September of 2022. As far as media coverage, I'd guess we will hear about this one more time during a slow news week, maybe in the summer, just sort of reminding us that uh, <laughs> the mission is underway. And then we're definitely going to get a whole bunch of Armageddon Deep Impact screenings at indie theaters coming up uh, in September. All right, well, that's it for this episode. If you have comments or questions, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Fortis or email me at FortisAdam at gmail.com. Thanks again to Jesse D. Follow Jesse on Twitch and on Twitter. Twitch is just Jesse D. Twitter is, is Dehan J. D-E-H-A-A-N-J. Our music, like always, provided by my friends at the band Booney. Find them at Booney.rocks. If you like the show, share it with a friend. We're on all streaming platforms and YouTube. Just look for Scientific Canada. And if you want to learn more, or if you want to support our creators, you can head over to scientificcanada.ca. See you next week. <laughs>